Hey everyone, welcome to the first ever episode of Titans of Healthcare. This is through the Slice of Healthcare podcast network. I'm your host, Jared Taylor. Today, for the first episode, we have quite the, the guest list. Uh, we have uh, Sean, Sean Mira from HealthTap, Nick Desai from Hey Renee, uh, Dr. John uh, Schutfeld from MeMD, and Michael Gorton from Recuro Health. Gentlemen, it's great to have you all here today. Excited to be here. Great to be here. If, uh, if we can quickly start out, I, I, we kind of talked through this a little bit before we started rolling, but we'll have a breakdown for everyone to go to your sites and learn more about your companies. But I figure we can kind of go one by one, maybe in that order, right? Sean, Nick, uh, John, Michael, uh, just give us a little, you know, give us the, the 30 seconds on your background and your company, and then we'll go into some of the, the cool topics that we have in store for today. Sounds great. It's a pleasure to be here. My name is Sean Mara. I'm a founder and CEO of HealthTap, one of the original companies, along with my peers here, founded back when digital health was called Health 2.0 and eHealth and mHealth. Uh, so HealthTap is focused on putting a long-term primary care doctor at every American's fingertips, regardless of their insurance coverage or lack of coverage or high deductible plan. And we aim to do so affordably and conveniently through a direct-to-consumer subscription model that has been working out very well for us. Thanks, Sean. Cool. Uh, I'm Nick Desai. Uh, I am uh, uh, have a channel here on Slice of Healthcare called Nick's Notes, so many of you know me. I'm the founder and former CEO of Heal, and now the founder and CEO of Hey Renee, uh, which is a digital care coordination company. Hey there, I'm John Schufeld. I'm an emergency medicine physician, uh, founded an urgent care company in 93, and then uh, in 2010 founded MeMD, which we just saw, which was a kind of early digital healthcare company for um, both uh, virtual care for virtual urgent care, and then it went to behavioral health and primary care. Uh, we sold it to Walmart in June of 2021. Pleasure to be here. All right, and I'm Michael Gorton. I, I kind of did the rough math on this, the titans of healthcare on this phone call are north of 75 years of experience, which is wow. not bad. So, <laughs> so mo most people know um, I, I founded Teladoc, um, started building it in 2000, and, um, and then uh, started Recuro about two years ago. And so Recuro is all about lowering costs, improving outcomes uh, by being preemptive. Oh. Thank you, everyone. Uh, yeah, it's it's going to be a, a tough episode to follow up. I mean, this is our first one for this show. It's going to be uh, interesting to see who we can get to follow. Uh, but really appreciate having you on uh, the podcast today. W one of the first core topics that we kind of want to go into, and we can kind of go in this panel format if it makes sense, and probably the best way to do it, uh, unless you have something that you kind of want to add on top of someone, is to maybe we continue with this order uh, that we have here today. But Really, uh, we, we want to try to make this as collaborative as we can, because I know you all have some different opinions, but also some similar opinions that we can kind of piggyback on one another with. So since we have uh, the, the OGs of uh, the digital health space on here, one of the first things I want to kind of talk about is really the early challenges of virtual care and just kind of showcase how far we've, we've come, because we, we have, we've, have come a long way here. Um, Sean, I, first, let's, let's kind of hear your thoughts on 
Uh, I'm sure you share a lot of the early challenges that everyone else here has had, but, and we can kind of, like I said, piggyback on top of each other, but curious to hear your thoughts and then we'll kind of go down the list of early challenges and kind of showcasing how far we've come as a, as a industry. I, th I think it's nice to start with some retrospection to just appreciate how far the industry has come in 12 years. I mean, when Michael, John, uh, Nick, we're all getting started. I mean, there are things we take for granted today that you can't take for granted. Telehealth, you know, not much more than 10 years ago amounted to pretty much a nurse hotline by telephone. And today you take for granted that we all have uh, bandwidth on our mobile devices with, you know, high definition cameras. You take for granted today that doctors are not freaking out about getting sued for what they say to patients on the internet uh, as much as they used to be. You have infrastructure and APIs for e-prescribing and for health data storage. And you have out of the box integrations for lab testing companies. There's just so many things that have become expected now. If you were to launch a telehealth venture that many of us pioneered <laughs> to get us to where we are today. Yeah, sorry, go ahead, Jared. No, I was just gonna say, Nick, I was gonna tee it up to you, see okay. your, your thoughts on this. I mean, I agree with everything Sean said. I would just add to that that one of the one of the most important things that's happened over the last half dozen years and then accelerated by the pandemic is this everything should happen in my house for me, right? My food gets delivered by Instacart, my meals, my cooked meals get delivered by Grubhub, my I get, you know, my content comes via streaming, my my dating, you know, they're using Tinder profiles. I and mean, this isn't funny, it's sad, but Russian soldier Tinder profiles to find out where they are inside Ukraine right now, right? Everything is happening from my phone and my home. And I'm working from home, which the the work from home movement, right? And so I think that it's a why not healthcare also happening at home, right? When I when we started Heal in 2014, I'm not as OG as some of you guys, but 2014, people were like, no one's ever going to let a doctor in their house. What the hell are you talking about, right? I distinctly remember a president from one of the four largest insurance companies saying, I look forward to going to a doctor. A doctor's office is one of my favorite places to go. That person doesn't work there, but that company has changed its position to be making huge bets on home-centric primary care. So I think overall society has changed that my home isn't the place I go to sleep, it's the place I do almost everything. Yeah, I would, I would agree with Nick and Sean. You know, Micah was in this way early. And so even back in 2010, when I told people about MeMD, they go, wait, what? And I'd always laugh and say, you could save someone's life in the emergency department. And they'd be like, well, yeah, that's what you're paid for. But you treat a woman at 3 a.m. with a UTI and you're like Moses. I mean, once they get, once they did it once, they were they were totally bought in. So it went from kind of this weird oddity for these very early adopters, and I mean, again, Michael was a true early, true early pioneer in this. So I'm walking ten years later, and it's still. You must have had a ten years of pulling your hair out. Um, it was still pulling my hair out for about the first five years before people really started to beam up for the fact that hey, this is kind of cool. And like Nick said, people are moving towards this home-based care, but man, it was a slow, it was a slow move pre-pandemic. Yeah, and just to sort of put the icing on that cake, um, Jared knows what I'm gonna say. <laughs> they told me I was gonna go to prison. <laughs> so that's, <laughs> that's where we were, that's where we were back in, in the 2000, you know, 2004 timeframe was, you know, the investors always say, well, what keeps you up at night? 
um, guys coming into my office with guns saying we're shutting you down and you're going to prison. That, um, that was sort of the beginnings of, of, of how we plowed through this and got to where we are. What, what's interesting, too, with, with what you did with Teladoc, right, is it, it can typically be a death sentence being too early in an industry. And, and you were still able to be very early and still be, be around, you know, many years later and not just around, you know, continuing to flourish. Uh, I feel like that doesn't happen, especially in healthcare, right? Being too early is even probably being too, but I, I feel like in, in healthcare, you almost need to be early and then just kind of ride the, the ups and downs until you can get to that point, like where we're at today, where, uh, I've, I've been hearing it's not going to be healthcare. It is, it's going to be virtual. Like everything's going to be virtual care or like a, a hybrid model. Uh, and if you're not, you're going to be left in the, in the past. So uh, re really interesting, uh, interesting thoughts from everyone. So thanks for sharing. Let's kind of tee that up and, and maybe we kind of, um, we, we kind of continue to, we'll, we'll go in reverse uh, on some of these questions so that everyone has the opportunity to kind of piggyback. So uh, I'll tee it back to you, Michael. What do you think needs to happen for virtual care to continue to move forward, you know, in a, in a post-pandemic uh, world? Right. Well, a lot of the doors are open now, which is really nice. But, but I think that the innovators, the men on this phone call today, need to keep innovating because we're going we're gonna to continue to see um, resistance. And it's resistance because we've been doing things this way forever, because we're making money, because whatever the reasons are. Um, and we just need to not let those people that aren't willing to accept the innovations and the things that are taking technology and bringing it to healthcare. We've just got to keep pushing it. You know, I would like to think that, that you know, Nick's, Nick's comment about the CEO from the health plan our days of old, you know, you would hope now, you know, kind of post pandemic that people have seen that, okay, healthcare is going to be a lot different. So we'll start doing, you know, lab tests at home, imaging directly, you know, directly at, imaging directly at your home and all the virtual care models that were, that you guys are all doing. You would hope that at this point, people be like, okay, I guess there's something to this. What else can we do as opposed to the next story or all the, Yes, you had to go through Michael to get to get where you went to. Yeah, I, I think that I think there are three things that that I was talking about. The first is the endemic force of resistance here at this point is I don't think the insurance company, the payer contingent contingent, because they want to embrace lower costs and they want to embrace more primary care and preventive care so that the overall health care costs go down. And I don't think it is the government as a primary uh, resistance or impedance at this point. I think it's a hospital oligopoly. I think they're the ones who benefit from people going to places. In fact, primary care doctors are owned in many cases by hospital systems. They feed in. UCLA here has a huge feeder network of primary care doctors 50 miles around UCLA that feed into that for anything beyond the most basic primary care right? The second piece is integrated diagnostics, right? We're testing right now a service we don't make called uh, um, uh, Bina that allows you to take blood pressure by holding your camera up to your phone, uh, your finger. And I think that that kind of stuff that gives a doctor more information in context of their conversation with you. Um, and I think the third one is 
using the technology as an enabler to a doctor-patient relationship. I sometimes use the analogy that telehealth has sometimes been like, I can do Zoom, except I can only Zoom with the people that they choose on the other side of Zoom. I can't just use it as a technology to talk to anyone I want via video, right? It has to be more of an extension of my own doctor-patient relationship. And I think all three things, all three of those things are coming with, you know, with ferocity and with velocity appropriate to the moment. And um, and the last thing I'll say is that it can't be five guys on this call, right? The, the people who create these solutions of tomorrow have to look like the users of tomorrow more than, you know, five fairly privileged dudes as far as these things go. Yeah, I think that's right. I think you're seeing very naturally a proliferation of specialized telehealth use cases, everything from the urgent care where the industry began to now pushing erectile dysfunction or birth control on an ongoing basis for a very specific use case. Um, mental behavioral health being another very big one. Um, what you're gonna start seeing is an importance placed on exactly what Nick just said, the longitudinal care from a consistent provider or team of providers that take care of you and orchestrate that care. And so that involves kind of an orchestration function, ideally led by a primary care doctor with whom you establish an ongoing long-term relationship. And then players within that ecosystem that help enable an omni-channel experience where it's not just about what can you do virtually, but it's about the harmony between what is being done virtually versus what will be done at home versus what will be done locally in brick and mortar walls. And then the beautiful bi-directional flow of information and, and patience uh, across all of those channels. And so I think what's need, what needs to be done to move virtual care forward is for innovators such as ourselves and so many of the new entrepreneurs in the industry to think about how to enable this holistic ongoing longitudinal vision that goes well beyond the, you know, if we just got a patient to call in to get an antibiotic for their UTI, <laughs> which is was a big win, right? As, as John and Mike already said, w w that's no longer enough. That's not what's gonna get us the sustainable repeat engagement that consumers are ultimately gonna need and what businesses are gonna require for their economics to work. Yeah. Yeah, I agree, what got us here won't get us there. So well said, Sean. Yeah, exactly. And, and Sean, like starting with you, if we can kind of, talk a little bit about it was part of it was mentioned within everyone's statement there but i guess from a regulatory perspective so you know i was talking with everyone a little bit about you know, i'm from the credentialing and licensing space and i know there's a lot that needs to change there to continue to move virtual care forward uh, but is there anything sean that you would quickly add to your statement as far as what we need to do to move forward on the regulatory side of things now this often is out of all of our hands right obviously there's lobbying and things that happen but uh, th these are kind of, I guess you could say, almost like a wish list of things that need to happen from a regulatory side of things. Uh, so starting with you, Sean, is there anything you would add to that? Or um... Um, I would say that on medical records privacy, we're pretty good where we are. It's the right practical balance with GDPR on one extreme and kind of uh, no regulation on the other extreme. I think health the United States from a medical record privacy standpoint with HIPAA is in a good spot. Where we're in a very bad spot still is, you know, reimbursement and physician licensing and credentialing. Uh, there needs to be more standardized coverage for telehealth across all payers, public and commercial, in all states, 
And then we need to just tear down these stupid walls where a physician licensed in one state cannot see a patient in another. <laughs> Otherwise, we should be sending doctors only to medical schools in the state where they're going to practice too. But we don't do that. So we're just internally inconsistent and laws are grossly outdated. Yeah, I would I would say that the most important thing, and just piggybacking off of what was just said, that the single most important thing is just to not treat it different. It's healthcare service delivery, and it should not matter whether it's virtual or physical. It should matter if it delivers the appropriate outcomes. And if we measure against quality and value as opposed to number of interactions, then a virtual visit can more frequent virtual visits can deliver better quality than less frequent in-person visits because you have an ongoing relationship rather than a transactional, you know, I see my doctor once a year because it's such a pain to go thing, right? So I think just getting, dropping that barrier distinction entirely, people don't call it, I'm dating by FaceTime or I'm dating by in person. They just say, I have a date, right? I'm w watching a movie. They don't say if it's streaming or DVD. They just say I'm watching a movie. In the, in the same way, I think we have to drop the distinction. It's a distinction without a difference at this point. I mean, parity laws, you're right. Parity laws have to be enforced now and in the future for both commercial and uh, Medicare and Medicaid. And then also this cross-border practicing, as, Nick, as Sean said, has to be relaxed because I think I've got 30 state licenses still, and it is expensive, ridiculous, and incredibly time-consuming uh, to try to do that. So those days have to end. So um, to that point, you know, we, we created a program at Teladoc that we called SuperDoc. And we took guys just like you, John, and said, hey, we're going to license you in multiple states. But John, I got a question for you. Are you saying that people in Oklahoma are the same as the rest of us? <laughs> Maybe not. not. I know. Nowadays, that's less true no. than ever. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just kidding. So, um, but the, you know, the problem is, it, I think it goes back to sort of a bureaucracy thing because those boards of medical examiners that control the doctors are like a fiefdom and every state has one. And how do we, you know, how do we get past that? It's going to, the COVID helped relax it quite a bit, but I see it coming back pretty, pretty fast. And I'd like to, I'd like to quickly shift focus and we can start with you, Michael, uh, as we get towards the, the end of, of this podcast without, without sharing each person's strategy here, right? The, the stuff that you don't want to share, give us kind of paint us a picture at, you know, as a group, what could the next five 10 years look like, let's say that, you know, some of the regulatory changes that you want happen, some of the items that you've identified to move virtual care forward post-pandemic happen, what are, what are we going to be looking at potentially in the next five to 10 years? Yeah, I think um, my perspective is one of the, one of the senior executives at one of the big plans said to me, we can't really be preemptive. So I want to just step to the side for a second and say, what is, is it that I'm talking about? If I call United or Blue Cross or whoever and say, I want to do a high-end physical, they'll say out-of-pocket expense. If I want to do a genomics test, they'll say out-of-pocket expense. And, you know, those are the things that uh, 
they haven't paid for. When I get sick, if I get cancer or anything else, they'll cover my expenses and they'll be there for me. But if I want to be preemptive, if I want to catch things before they become dangerous and expensive, they call it a out-of-pocket expense. And that's the thing that those of us who are innovators, you know, for uh, John, Sean, Nick, we, you know, we've all started these companies thinking we were going to change everything and access to care and the cost of care. And why does my sister-in-law get diagnosed with cancer stage three or stage four? You know, we can catch this, um, but we're not. And so that's the thing that it, when, when we really fix our healthcare system, it is because we're teaching people how to be preemptive. We're showing them how to make their immune system strong. We're showing uh, the individual's ways that they can catch things before they become dangerous and expensive. Yeah, I would just tag on that. I mean, it's got to go towards personalized medicine. And, you know, Michael aptly describes that as preemptive. And, you know, I've done all sorts of pharmacogenetics testing and genetics testing to see what I'm at risk for. I'm adopted, so I don't really have any family history that I know of. But now I know all the medications I can take, all the medications I should stay away from, things I should be concerned about. And yeah, I paid for it out of pocket because it was worth it to me to have some sort of, as opposed to my telephone pole family history, it was, a, it was worth it for me to have a little background. But I think using personalized medicine to ultimately lower the cost of care and improve health outcomes, is, it has to be where we end up. And hopefully it'll be within five years. Yeah, and, and I, I think, and I want to echo what Michael said, because I think it's so important, right? I, I, I've made this joke before that when you start a health tech company, you start out thinking you're going to change everything, and then you're lucky if you change anything, right? Um, because it is it is so hard, but I think we have a, a unique sort of generational opportunity because of confluence of factors that we've talked about to really move towards a preventive and pre predictive healthcare system that uses digital technologies to substantially lower the cost. I, I often use this analogy. It's like, it's like instead of my kids being in school learning what they will need to know, it's like they face a problem as adults and they, oh, math. Oh, okay, let me go figure out how to add two and two. That's that's how insurance thinks about it. Health insurance operates in the same way car insurance does, but the car insurance is built on the notion that the person driving the car doesn't want an accident and the insurance company doesn't want you to have an accident, right? Except healthcare works the opposite. It's like education. The more preventive and early it is, the better the overall costs are and the overall outcomes are better. And I think that the, the advent of digital diagnostics, personalized medicine, and a universal access point, which is the mobile device and connectivity, really have a chance to bring that to life. And I, I, I sincerely hope to be part of that. But even if I'm not, I hope it happens for the better of all Americans and all humans. Yeah, I'll try to answer this maybe from a market's perspective. I think the next five years, you're going to see a further proliferation of point solution devices, apps, um, algorithms that do a specific job. But then simultaneously, you're going to see uh, through M&A, a lot of consolidation and platformization of a lot of those point solutions, either through like third party marketplace models where one platform enables access to a bunch of different verticals of use cases or through actual consolidation and acquisition and roll up of many of these companies that have, you know, innovated in their own way, but now being bundled together under single contracts with respective enterprise customers. 
I think the other thing you'll see is um, graduating the conversation from contracted eligible lives to actual usage and outcomes. You know, the, the market, the, the public markets and industry analysts in general have been pretty forgiving in saying, okay, you have a lot of contracted revenue because you're covering a large population with your telehealth solution, but that is quickly becoming insufficient. Now they're going to the question, well, how many people are actually using your service out of that eligible population? So companies are going to have to get a lot more savvy about engagement, adoption, and the marketing programs and how effective they are at actually driving usage. Um, and as you do that, you're going to find companies that get better at consumer engagement marketing, realizing that we don't have to be beholden to B2B models, that they are direct to consumer models, which might be just as big, if not bigger, than where the industry started in B2B, because that was the easy access to distribution. You work with an, an employer, a plan, a health system, you get access to a lot of patients in one go. But there is a growing segment of the American consumer market that is uh, the rise of the 1099 gig economy worker, the rise of the high deductible plan, right? There's just growing portions of the American population that do not get good coverage with their insurance plan. And they're not waiting for an email from their employer to learn about a telehealth solution. They're going on Google, they're going on Facebook, and which brands are raising their hands saying, you know, I can serve you in answer to your health question. You know, I think a lot of the vision that I'm sure Cheryl at Walmart saw in, in John, the asset you built is bringing some of that vision together, right? Is meeting consumers where they are and integrating a whole bunch of services for them. As, uh, as we, we wrap up, basically in the next uh, three to five minutes. This is the part of, of this episode where everyone gets to get, kind of give their plug. So basically starting with you, Sean, we'll just kind of go back down the, the lineup here. Uh, tell us a little bit about how HealthTap is playing its role in the future of virtual care, and then we'll go Nick, John, Michael uh, as we wrap up. I'll keep it relatively short. Uh, HealthTap is um, really focused on reaching American consumers directly at a price point they can afford, regardless of their deductible or insurance coverage or employment situation, with a membership-based primary care model that they can buy with a credit card uh, and not worry about the cost. Um, and, you know, like I said, with the more than half this country that is underinsured, with the billion health searches happening every day on Google to health questions, we're trying to get in front of those consumers where they are and offer them a long-term relationship with the primary care doctor through our app. Yeah, I uh, I will say that before I even say what we're doing, I just I wish I was I got to be John in this, and because he's like, look, I'm trying to decide between the Lamborghini and the Bugatti. I've sold my company to Walmart now, and uh, <laughs> my next steps are uh, jet. Or yacht. Okay, so um, congrats <laughs> to you, John. It's a it's a long road you hold. I remember meeting you seven years ago, um, and and wonderful to be on this panel with everyone. I think what we do at Hey Renee is whole person horizontal digital care coordination. That a person isn't a diabetic, separate from a hypertensive, separate from obesity, separate from mental health, separate from, separate from, separate from. They're all those things. They're a human being named Juanita Gomez or Jane Smith. And only if you coordinate all aspects of their care using various digital tools to work together, you can't coordinate any aspect of their care. Um, that's, what, that's what we do at Hey Renee. And again, it's, it's been a real pleasure to talk to John and 
Michael and and Sean and and Jared, thanks for putting these wonderful things together. So I, my my little small piece of this is I'm working with Walmart as a consultant, just to help them deliver their omni-channel care. And you know, there's a Walmart within ten mile, like ten minutes of ninety-five percent of the U.S. population with their five thousand stores, so they can make a big impact in healthcare. And the leadership there is absolutely um, committed to doing that. And so, you know, that's that's my small small slice of the modern healthcare today. And uh, thanks, Jared, for putting this on. Jens, it was great, uh, great hanging out with you. So I'm just glad I didn't say Arkansas. <laughs> I said <laughs> Oklahoma. <laughs> so, um, you know, the the one thing that I can say, sort of, um, as the old historian in this in this um, podcast, is that the industry has finally reached the stage where we can say we are no longer an emergent industry. We are now a growth industry, and the fact that that uh, John's company was bought by Walmart, um, I guarantee you, CVS is going to make an acquisition this year. And so, you know, our my company, Recuro, I said is all about being preemptive. But if you think about what all of us did, um, people can call it telemedicine or digital, whatever. But what we really did was we brought efficiency to healthcare. And so what I'm trying to do at Recuro right now is I'm trying to find all those assets out there, the technology, the great ideas that will be crushed in this consolidation phase. And I'm trying to bring them into a company that, in, that, that gives them the resources they need to become what they should become. And you know we call it a digital medical home, uh, but Ultimately, you know, we I've I've seen a company that start I started with John Halsey a couple of years ago, and um, we're going to pass the two hundred million dollar valuation point based on a reasonable multiple this year. And so, it, you know, it's it's fun being on this rocket ship, and I look forward to catching up to you, John, and having the yacht or the I'd I'd rather have the rocket ship decision, but whatever. <laughs> well. You and Elon. <laughs> I, I'm a landlubber. I'm going with Lamborghini. I don't want to be in the sky. I don't want to be in the water. I like land. Okay. Well, uh, gentlemen, it's it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm glad we were able to get this this group together and so quickly to, to come on this first episode of, of Titans of Healthcare. The goal will be to have you all on uh, again at some point, whether it's the same group or it's, uh, you know, one-offs and we kind of mix and match with some other areas of virtual care and beyond. But uh, really appreciate everyone uh, joining us here today. Yeah, guys, I'm humbled. Thank you for letting me speak alongside you. Same. Thank you. Yes, indeed. Yeah.